Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is New Books in Science Fiction, a show that celebrates great books and the people who write them. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Drain the Marsh edition. A few months ago, the book we're discussing on today's show would probably have been described as set in the near future. The story is premised on a big what if, as in, what if the President of the United States were impeached by the House of Representatives and then convicted in the Senate. These days, that possible future feels like it's becoming more and more plausible. Anyone following the news knows that emotions are certainly rising, and obviously the stakes are huge. And Craig DeLuey's new novel, Our War, definitely underscores that. I've got Craig on the line with me now from his home in Calgary, Alberta. Thanks for coming on the pod, Craig. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me. So let's set up the story for listeners. By the time our war opens, the impeachment and conviction of President Philip Marsh has already happened. And according to the U.S. Constitution, the moment the Senate voted to convict Marsh, he was automatically and immediately removed from office. Only President Marsh doesn't really see it that way, does he? No, he doesn't. And that's what triggers the Civil War in the novel. Um, the novel is about a second American civil war and some people who are caught up in it, what their lives are like, and they represent the kind of lives we might be living if we were ever to live through an event like that. But it all starts with a president who's impeached but refuses to leave office, uh, which is really based on the backdrop of a polarized America as the catalyst, not the cause of the civil war. Well, I wanted to get to what you were thinking when you first sat down to write this book. I mean, obviously, given the lead time required to write and publish a book, you started writing this long before the current impeachment inquiry got underway in the House of Representatives. And in in fact, your book came out August 20th in the United States. And the House of Representatives initiated their impeachment inquiry September 24th. So that was about a month later. Yes. So when you started writing, this was really much more speculative than it might seem to anyone picking up the book today. So so what was going through your mind? Yeah, speculative, but to some inevitable, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I started writing the book in 2017. I finished it in 2018, and then it was published in 2019. And back when I was starting to write it, I was looking at the growing polarization in America uh, and political tribalization, which is considered a, one of the five precursors to uh, civil war. And I found that very alarming, but I didn't find it to be new. I've been politically aware for many years, and I've seen this polarization get worse and worse and worse for the last three decades. And so I imagined that, well, what if it went to its logical conclusion, which was civil war? Well, what would be the catalyst of that? And I thought, well, the president's impeached for doing something bad, and he says, I'm not going and the uh, right-wing militias uh, stage a national armed protest, similar to what they did with the Wildlife Oregon Refuge, but they do it on a national scale. 
And their argument is that this is not uh, constitutional at all. It's actually a soft coup by the deep state. So their armed protest is successful uh, initially, so much so, at least in rural areas, uh, that they take it much further and it rolls into a civil war that rages for a year by the time the novel begins. And so since the novels come out, a bunch of things have happened. Uh, you know, Trump is going through impeachment now uh, with the House set to vote on that probably soon. Uh, the right wing militias have called it exactly that, a soft coup by the deep state. They have threatened civil war. The president himself has indirectly threatened civil war. And magazines like Foreign Policy, um, which is is a pretty serious establishment uh, publication, have begun speculating on uh, what would happen if, say, Trump were impeached but said, I'm not leaving? What, what, how, what are the mechanisms to actually remove the president? And so it, the novel, when I was writing it, it seemed prescient, but now it feels torn from today's headlines, and which is actually alarming to me, and I hope it stays fiction. Exactly. I mean, it feels, on the one hand, very plausible, and on the other, I guess we're still in the somewhat early stages of the impeachment process, it feels like a lot of people still have faith in the system that keeps the rule of law supreme. And I wonder, there was a question that one of your characters had, a Canadian aid worker, a character named Gabrielle Justine, who works for UNICEF, and she flies in to the United States to help the children victimized by the war, and she comes into Indianapolis, where your book is set, and she asks a reporter, well, I don't understand why the U.S. military can't stop the fighting. And when she asked that question, I thought, oh, that's from the perspective, that's the perspective I have right now, thinking, well, there are forces that will prevent the society from collapsing. And, and that's obviously what she's thinking uh, as a Canadian initially watching from the outside. I wonder why do things fall apart so suddenly? Why aren't the law and order, the police, the U.S. military able to prevent this collapse? Well, the United States has quite a few police officers, but most of them are in the big cities. And so that's exactly where the militias stop. They cannot get into the cities. So this results in a siege-like situation where the battle lines are drawn between not red and blue states or north and south, as in the last civil war. Um, but instead, between largely between rural areas, which are where you don't have a lot of population density, uh, but uh, they're they lean conservative. And then you have metropolitan areas, which are smaller geographically, but much higher population density. And uh, they tend to lean liberal. So the battle lines will be drawn on around uh, with between rural, largely rural and urban areas. Uh, with uh, police departments on one side uh, allied with leftist militias, that's what's depicted in the novel, fighting against right-wing militias outside. So the, uh, the left-wing militias have the more numbers, but they don't have the training and equipment that the right-wing militias have who've been training exactly for this for years, um, whereas the, the right-wing militias don't have the numbers, though. So it, it results in a stalemate in a fairly low-tech war, uh, very similar to what you would find in other countries where there have been civil wars. An example would be Bosnia, and that was a model for this. Indianapolis is, uh, to a large extent, in the novel, which is under siege by right-wing militias, is modeled after uh, Sarajevo in the Bosnian War. 
And uh, because I saw that it would probably roll out very similarly here if it were ever to uh, happen. As far as the, uh, the U.S. military, this is a very well-funded war machine that is so well-funded and, and so, uh, does so much, so many government services that it's, a, it's practically a shadow government on its own. So why can't the U.S. military stop something like this? Well, most of them are uh, deployed abroad. And those that are deployed here are a lot of National Guard. And then you have the, the, uh, the military itself, the federal military. Um, they would have basically a really bad choice. If uh, right-wing militias were very well coordinated and funded, and they decided to, all, to do what they were going to do all at the same time, they could make a, a very well-funded domestic military, shadow mil- paramilitary, could achieve very um, strong successes initially. And then once those battle lines were drawn, the military would be trying to figure out what they're going to do. Well, they can remove the president and basically choose sides, which might be regarded as a coup. They, and then they're responsible for the government, basically. The other option is they could choose the other side, choose to follow orders from the commander in chief and, uh, and go against uh, the con- Congress. Or they can uh, say, you know, we're, we're just going to restore law and order uh, and we're just going to go into the areas. We're not picking sides, but we're just going to we're just going to go into these cities and, and, and states and. Uh, basically make everybody go home. The problem with any of these three scenarios is two two things. One is that the military may, would end up shooting its own people. And they, they I don't see them doing that agreeably. I don't see them wanting to do that. I don't see them being comfortable with that at all. And it would cause a lot of problems within the ranks. The second thing is that the uh, military has become very polarized in itself. Uh, I, I think there, it's a myth that we look at the military and say, oh, they're, well, they're, they're, they're very uh, conservative. That's absolutely not true. Um, the officer corps tends to le- lean conservative, but the rank and file actually te- tends to lean liberal. And they're becoming more and more polarized such that Military Times, a, a great magazine that covers the military, they do surveys and they found the, like a, lar- a majority of service members feel that their readers feel that the U.S. military has become more polarized. So the last thing you want is U.S. servicemen sh- uh, members shooting at each other and taking sides in the war. So the, what I envisioned in, the, in this scenario, which is depicted in the novel, is that the U.S. military would take a role more of safeguarding airports, the electrical grid, vital installations, making sure that the country is defended from the outside. And they would basically keep aid, make sure aid keeps flowing into the country and that food is distributed and so on and so forth, uh, while peace talks go on in Ottawa um, the, uh, between Congress and the president to uh, work out their differences. And uh, so I would say that's what the military would do. That was a big question for me. Why wouldn't the military be able to stop something like this? And there's very some very easy answers why. In a second, I want to get into what really is one of the very main thematic focuses of the book, which is the impact of the war on children and children's soldiers. But but before we do that, I just want to talk a little bit more about these these two sides. And I've read interviews in which you've said you've made an effort to really not choose a side in your representation, trying to create empathy for both sides to some extent, at least to the some of the individual characters on both sides, as well as right. pointing out flaws. 
the sides are pretty much as you've described them and as anyone following the news or knows about the polarization in America knows, you know, there's the people supporting Marsh who, you know, are the kinds of people who, you know, are suspicious of immigrants and they get freaked out by this reporter I mentioned before Mm -hmm. because she's a woman of color and they're way into gun rights. And then the other side, uh, which is largely represented by a group of women who used to be affiliated with the battered women's shelter, they're the more traditionally left view, pro-choice, pro-LGBTQ rights. They have a lot of guns now, too, of course. As you say, maybe they're not as good at, at using them or as experienced. But my question really is, is how do you navigate that? I mean, in a sense, it's almost impossible not to take sides to some extent. And I think, you know, a reader might feel that one side is more sympathetic than another. And I just wonder how you navigated that and what was going through your mind. Well, naturally, the reader's going to bring their own prejudices to the book. Uh, we are a polarized society, and the the more politically aware people are, they the more likely they are to have taken a, a side in the cultural wars and the political conflict in Washington. And so they they're going to bring their prejudices to the book. And if that if they do that and they see their side criticized, they may they may get upset because a certain mythology has been contradicted. But that's as the author, that's I can't. This is not the kind of book where you can please everybody. So I, I could I could have written a wish fulfillment book, uh, say it was a right wing book. I would write about a plucky band of American patriots who use their God given gun rights to resist the Marxist tyranny. And I've seen books like that. On the other side, I might have uh, you know leftists stoically resisting uh, you know fascism in America, like which I've seen books like that too. And there's those books are fine. Uh, they cater to their core audiences, and that's great. But I wanted to write a book for Americans in which the bad guy is really the war. I mean, you had the you have uh, one of the things that should come out in this story is that you see Americans with very common problems, like healthcare. There's a couple whose child has died, but the the father interpreted it in that event entirely differently than the mother did, and they went off on different sides, and they start they ended up shooting at, shooting at each other in the book. But they interpreted that event where a, a child dies without health insurance to, be, to mean in completely different things. And so you have Americans who, with very common problems, but very different narratives as to why those problems are happening and how to solve them. So I'm hoping that readers will see the, the war itself uh, as the bad guy uh, and see all the characters in the book as, well, people. You know, they're not the good guys or the bad guys. They're they're all flawed in, in their own way, though the children ca- child characters are more innocent, of course. Uh, but as far as the adults, um, they just have their point of view. So as for the trick for me was to keep my my face out of it. Uh, I didn't I have very strong political views. I've been politically aware for many, many years. And, and again, I have strong views. But I don't think my reader would be very interested in them. Uh, my friends are. But uh, I don't think my reader is and they didn't and I don't think this is the kind of book where I wanted to do uh, any sermonizing. And so I wanted people to judge for themselves the different sides and which are presented by the characters. So each character has a different political point of view and they feel very strongly about that point of view and they communicate that in the book. And if anybody doesn't like that, they can take it up with the character, I guess. (laughs) Otherwise. I tried to stay out of like on the nose political issues like so healthcare is, is talked about in the book briefly, gun rights, that kind of thing. These are all handled very generally because I didn't want to date the book strongly. Uh, what I really wanted to get at with the right wing and the left wing 
militias in the book was something far more fundamental, which was a basic worldview. And that to me was a lot more fascinating than to whether one side wanted to ban guns or one side wanted to say every all teachers should be armed. You know, those are debates about issues that are very particular. And I left a lot of that out of the book. Again, I was far more interested in the basic worldview. So again, you have uh, the two militias. One is the free women, uh, which, as you said, was formed from a battered uh, women's uh, shelter during uh, the initial troubles. And there, and this is a, uh, there's many leftist militias, but this is the one we focus on. And Hannah, our, one of our main characters, ends up joining them. And that militia is really about uh, collaboration, consensus, uh, listening to others, owning things in common, a common, you know, giving giving your all to a common cause and getting what you need in return. And that's what they're they're all about. And then on the right wing side, you have a militia called uh, the Liberty Tree, named after the the tree in Boston where the the massacre occurred and the first blood of patriots nourished this tree in you know American revolutionary mythology and so they their point of view and Alex uh, who is Hannah's brother Hannah joins the free women Alex ends up joining her brother ends up joining uh, the Liberty Tree and the Liberty Tree is uh, more a different point of view almost the polar opposite and their view is more uh, it's a dog-eat-dog world and uh, if you don't watch out for government, government's going to get you down. Uh, the system's out to get you. You have to fight for what you want. You have to be tough. You have to be strong. You know, you're an island. And that, that, so you have these two very, very different point of views in, in conflict, which really sets up a nice cultural and political contrast for the two different sides. And so that's how I ended up running with it, presenting the, the characters, having their political views. And then, uh, you know, and then handling, uh, you know, how the issue of fairness, which is what you, your initial question was about. Um, that's how I ended up handling it. I had a palette of characters. They all presented their points of view. And those point of view come from fundamentally different worldviews. Well, let's talk a little bit about Hannah and Alex. As you say, they're brother and sister, and they end up on opposing sides Maybe you could just share a little bit about their circumstances. I mean, obviously, they're little kids. I think Hannah is 10 or 11. I think she's 11 at the outset, yeah. and Alex is around 15 or so. Yes. So they're not choosing sides because of their ideology. It's really more circumstances that just kind of throw them in one direction or another. Right. And I found that very powerfully symbolic. I mean, it's almost like they become where they end up in an almost arbitrary way. And of course, they're children. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're not coming at it with a, with a strong ideology. Right. But could you talk a little bit about that, I guess, about how they end up on opposite sides like that? And then what the the psychology of being a child soldier, I mean, very quickly, they become very loyal to the side that they're on. And again, it has little to do with ideology. It really has to do with the relationships and the, mm -hmm. the, the figures around them. And it's really kind of a fascinating window into the minds of of children in these dire circumstances. Yeah, well, you brought up some great stuff there. Um, I'll see if I can cover all of it. Uh, Hannah and Alex are orphaned by the fighting. They end up 
uh, with these different militias uh, through entirely through circumstance, as you say. And the arbitrary—I like that they use the word arbitrary. The arbitrary nature of this reflects basically our society. A lot of times, we're the product of where we were born, the class we were born into, our parents and their views. We sort of inherit, you know, what our parents uh, give us in more ways than one. And it's the same with these orphaned uh, children who end up fighting as as child soldiers. Now, uh, they don't start out being handed weapons. They're children, and the militias recognize that. But there's very few options for orphans. And the militias, in their mind, they're doing the kids a favor, but the kids are now working for the militia. And so they're porters, they're cooks, they're spies, they're runners in battle. And this is where Hannah and, and Alex end up. Hannah ends up with the free women, Alex with the uh, liberty tree. And over time, as circumstances go on with uh, the, the conflict gets bloodier and more desperate, the children end up fighting, which is what happens in a lot of uh, wars, civil wars around the world. Children may, are, make great soldiers in their view. Uh, they're loyal. They don't expect to get paid. And they end up staying. A lot of times their loyalty is not based on an ideology. It's all gibberish to them. But they end up staying and fighting because the militia becomes their family. And so that's what uh, I imported into this book, those ideas. I was inspired by uh, stories of child soldiers around the world. I mean, at any given time, there's hundreds of thousands of them fighting around the world. It's absolutely horrible. I ended up doing a lot of research into that mindset, ended up uh, watching the Netflix movie Beasts of No Nation, read the fa fascinating book it was based on, read a lot of different uh, UN reports, UNICEF reports about child soldiers and what the mentality is like and how they're treated when they get out, which was very important to the conclusion of the book. So I was fascinated by that. And I wanted to bring that into this book for two reasons. One, I wanted to have two characters who didn't have any political prejudices before the book's be book began, but end the book with very strong political prejudice. They, they, they're acquired through the fighting. These children become radicalized fighters for their uh, different causes. And I also wanted to show the true cost of civil war is always paid by the innocent. It's, uh, civil wars are the kind of wars where everybody fights and nobody wins. And the cost is paid for by, again, by the innocent, in this case, um, the children. And I, I just thought that was fascinating material to work with, having these kids end up in, in the war. And then they in, end up, they become the catalyst around which the other characters uh, interact. Well, it's amazing to see them almost become, and the word addiction comes to mind. I mean, they both become very driven and addicted to the danger in a way that you wouldn't have anticipated. You think of a kid being afraid of war just because that seems like a natural impulse, but they get acclimatized to it. Alex in particular just gets this incredible rush. Maybe it's a way of a way he deals with his feelings, but it's kind of amazing. And then at the end, when you see children in a refugee camp, in Canada, of course, where else would there be a, a safe place near the United States? Their kids who have come from the war continue to play war games. It's like working something out rather than running from it. In other words, it's become really an integrated part of them, it seems. And I mean, it's very poignant and sad. Yeah, this is, that's those refugee camp scenes are all, all, all based on UNICEF reports and what it's really like for child soldiers. Uh, they they have a really hard time letting go their their sense of importance. They become adults before their time. Uh, the war is normal to them. 
and the, then the fighting becomes normal to them. And sometimes on a personal level, uh, as in the case of Alex, where, yeah, he does get a rush in combat because everything else sucks. But when he's in combat, he just feels extremely excited. And uh, this is very common with soldiers. And it, there'd be no difference between a, a 15-year-old boy and uh, an 18-year-old kid who goes to Iraq or Afghanistan and ends up fighting. Um, they, they, they experience a, a lot of the same rush of combat. They may not like war, but combat is a different thing. It becomes, it is like a drug for people and, and um, its loss is, is a contributor to PTSD. And uh, so you have these kids in these refugee camps who are having fistfights with kids from the other side. They're still playing the war. They're like playing war, just like they were playing war with real guns. Now they're playing with their fists in the refugee camp. And it's just sad because you can see that they've just been raised with the war. The war is normal. They feel it's a part of their identity and they don't want to let it go. And they're just going to carry on as they have. But, you know, there's this chance of redemption for them, uh, for them to know that they're loved and that the war isn't normal. And what was done to them was wrong, even though it felt like family, it was actually wrong. Well, the metaphor of a brother and sister fighting on opposite sides really hits home the idea of countrymen fighting countrymen. I mean, that really is the the most quintessential way to distill what a civil war is, two people from the same family fighting each other. Right. I, I definitely wanted to use the child soldiers, which I, I thought was a really fascinating angle to explore a topic that's been done in other books, but I wanted to explore it in a contemporary setting, not quite a Romano Clef where I'm just taking reality and changing names. I want to, it, it is different enough, but it is very similar to our current day. And I wanted to explore it through characters who were non-threatening. And so the kids are extremely non-threatening and they become, they become indoctrinated. And there's a subtle message of uh, American exceptionalism being one of the casualties of the war. So we tend to look at, you know, other countries like Syria and we say, oh, look at that war. It's absolutely terrible. Look at the refugees. Look at the shortages. Look at the refugee camps. Look at the child soldiers. That could never happen here. And then, of course, well, if there were a civil war were to break out here, it absolutely would happen here. And so it's a it, hopefully it'll be surprising to readers and really hammer home that a civil war in this country would not be formal. It would not look like the last civil war with people in uniform standing in ranks fighting across clearly defined boundaries. It would be everywhere. It would be horrific. And children would be, very likely end up being caught up in it. And so I wanted to show that true cost with characters who were really sympathetic and who had no political prejudices of their own. And, uh, and I think it, that works on a, ver a strong emotional level around the, uh, for the reader. And then it provides a springboard for the other characters to interact with. So you have a UNICEF worker who's trying to stop the use of child soldiers. You have a journalist who's trying to expose the use of child soldiers. And then you have a, a militia sergeant and a right-wing militia who strongly believes in his cause which he hopes the war will end with a constitutional convention and he'll, he'll be able to remake the government and the, our system of laws. But now he sees the what's happening with these kids and it, through them, he starts to see the humanity of those he hates more and he becomes conflicted as a result of that. So the kids become are sort of the main event for the reader to enter the story and they're also the catalyst for the other characters uh, to have their own uh, character arcs and epiphanies and change in the story. It's interesting you talk about American exceptionalism or this idea that it couldn't happen here, because I think that's one of the powerful qualities of your story. 
obviously we read all the time, as you say, about war happening in other places and in Yemen and Syria. And we we know it's sad. I hope I don't sound like a jerk, but it's hard for it to hit me anyway. I'll speak about myself in a visceral way. Yes. And I think we just get used to it. We read about it, but it's very abstract. And of course, you're telling the story also in a book. So I'm just reading it. I'm not experiencing it. But the fact that you said it in Indianapolis, this middle of the country place, makes it more startling, I guess, more intimate in a way, because it's happening in a place that feels very familiar. And and it really is like house to house combat. As you say, yeah. it goes from block to block, street to street. Right. Yeah, Indianapolis is the the uh, crossroads of America, is is what they call it, and so it's a quintessential American city. It's uh, average in a lot of ways. Um, it's uh, it's uh, midwestern, and uh, I just thought it would be the ideal setting for this, particularly also because it's a very blue city in a very in a sea of red, uh, very very red rural areas around it, and so I thought that would actually be, be an ideal. Uh, setting. But you brought up another interesting thing, which was this idea of how do you take the idea of civil war and bring it home, but not just so that it's intriguing, like, oh, what if a civil war happened, but visceral, like, oh my God, a civil war could happen and this is what it could mean. Uh, One of the things that inspired me is a number of years ago, there was this really brilliant public service ad put out by a relief organization. And this was around the time when the Syrian war was kicking off. And they wanted to show what it would what it was like. And they wanted people in America and, and in this case, the United Kingdom to really feel for these refugees and what it was like to be in this civil war. So they basically created a fictional uh, civil war in Great Britain where it's one second of, you know, at once a week or every day or something like that. Well, I think every week. Uh, in this war. So it's like 52 second ad, a 60 second ad. And you see this one second of action in this little girl's life over the course of this year. And she starts out with a birthday party and she's uh, happy. And then there's a, you see her swinging on a swing set. Then you see her in her living room uh, doing homework while her dad's reading a newspaper and the headline saying martial law declared. And so you just see the the war encroach more and more until they have to flee their home. They end up in a refugee camp. They're all separated and she's by herself. And then uh, the commercial ends with her in a refugee camp with a, with this, this home, you know, kind of like makeshift cupcake and with a candle on a saying, you know, blow it out, dear. And she looks at the camera and you're like, oh, my God, that's horrible because it's someone we know. It's it's someone from our culture, not somewhat far off country. And so that ad was so, so powerful for me. It was part of the catalyst for me to write the book. Actually, I was like, wow, you know, that that is really strong stuff. What if it did happen here? And your book begins, actually, you're reminding me with Hannah and her mother and her mother's promising to make her a cake without, I think, milk, flour, and sugar, I think. I mean, it was like basically everything that goes into a cake. She was going to figure out a way to make it without those things to to celebrate her birthday. Right. People in uh, besieged countries and, and refugee camps, they're, they're magicians with the rations, the staples they get through the UN and other relief agencies. And the cake in this case was is called a war cake. I think the recipe is provided in the book at some point, and it's a real recipe from Sarajevo during the Bosnian War, they would take whatever they could get their hands on, you know, mostly through uh, UN relief agencies, which would be some cheese, some 
they might get a little bit of sugar, they might get uh, oil, and they would just whip whip together these meals out of it that would be like what they were used to and liked, but it would be made from completely, <laughs> you know, different ingredients than what they were used to. You're Canadian-American, is that correct? Yeah, I guess the term is American-Canadian. I was born in the United States, and I lived, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and I lived in New York City for seven years, and then moved here soon after 9-11. I, I was uh, married to a Canadian woman, and I've been here ever since, and absolutely love it. I love Canada, and but, uh, you know, United States is my home, and I, I, I remain tethered uh, spiritually, emotionally, and, and to a large extent politically. So as an American-Canadian, do you think having had the experience of living these past, sounds like 18 years in Canada, has allowed you to take a different approach to this book or adds a special ingredient to, to your ability to sort of see maybe a little bit more objectively what's going on here? I don't think so. I think that what lent me... A, a distinguishing perspective for this book was just uh, being politically aware and doing a lot of reading and be, and then the ability to empathize with uh, the what I would consider the other side for me. And so I could represent them in the book well uh, or as uh, humanely as hu- as humans um, with the portray their humanity first. Who people who sim- flawed people who simply have happen to have this belief system and and then portray that as a spectrum. So I think that's probably what would distinguish me as the author of this, that I was willing to take the chance and write a story that felt current. Uh, I've seen other Civil War books, but they're set way in the future. The, the Civil War is very fantastic and highly speculative. I wanted something a little more grounded. I wanted something that would answer for people who might ask the question, a Civil War in America could have happened? What would that look like? Well, okay, I took that seriously, and I said, okay, this is what I think what would happen. I did a huge amount of research into civil wars around the world, uh, the American political system, how the military might might respond, um, just vast amount of research because I wanted to do justice to the question so that my answer would be credible and gritty and authentic. And it may not be pleasant, uh, may not be palatable for some people, but I feel it's uh, real. I think it feels real. Uh, whether it happens or not, I hope it doesn't. But I think if it were to happen, I think it might roll out exactly like this. I guess that, to me, is the key question right now. Like, given what's happening right now, what are the odds, as someone who's given this, obviously, a lot of thought and played it all out in your head to the nth detail, what are the odds, you think, that your book might turn out to be predictive instead of merely speculative? That's a fantastic question. Uh, I think that it's the what the more likely outcome of what is happening in Washington for the near future is more likely to be civil strife than civil war. And civil strife is defined as, you know, say 20, I think it's 25 plus combat deaths a year, arguably with terrorism, uh, which is being perpetrated by right wing militias or, or groups rather that, that we're there now. Uh, we are in a state of, of civil strife. I think that if Trump were impeached uh, and he refused to go, I think that he would end up being pressured out. He would not have enough support among the wealthy. I think that he would have plenty of support among militias who would say, tell us, you know, can, can we do something? That being said, 
how would this turn into a civil war? This is where I sound like a conspiracy theorist and I'm absolutely off my nut, but I, I actually believe this is true. I believe that if the billionaire class were to say, yes, do this, and they were to appropriately finance and coordinate the militias into a single cohesive uh, entity act acting in cohesion, then the civil war is a very strong possibility. Now, why would that happen? It would not probably not happen to save the president's butt. If, if a civil war were to happen in, in America, after if Trump were impeached and he refused to go, for example, I don't think it would be because the, 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 the real power in the country wanted to see him saved or immune from prosecution if he left or anything like that. It would be to create a state of conflict that would result in a new constitutional convention, that this would be a way to shortcut that through the democratic process, that the only way to resolve the war would be a constitutional convention. And then once you have a constitutional convention, every single law in the country is up for grabs. That how you tax Americans is up for grabs. Whether there's a national ID card is up for grabs. English as the official language. There'd be plenty of red meat to fight over for left-wingers and right-wingers uh, in the cultural wars, but also more fundamentally, whether there's a flat tax and the government cannot overspend, over, ever do a, run a deficit. Um, these are very, very powerful things to be able to rewrite. I mean, you have, you, you know, you may call me crazy, but there are billionaires like the Cokes and the Mercers. They're spending a lot of money to uh, oppose legislation like Obamacare. Uh, to discredit politicians. They spent a huge amount of money in the last election against uh, Clinton. Uh, you have uh, bot, you know, all the social media bots, uh, all the online trolls being paid, all sorts of stuff going on. There's a huge amount of skin in the game as to who runs the country. There's a even huger amount of skin in the game for these people as to uh, whether the system of laws can be rewritten or not. And so I would see that as a potential scenario. I mean, it's extremely ballsy on their part, but it's not that much ballsier than them basically short-circuiting democracy as they're doing by pouring money into the political system and distorting debate. These are people who have started TV channels and run TV channels. These are people who fund think tanks that come up with reports arguing for their policy positions. These are people who have financed candidates and gotten their candidates elected. These are people who have financed things like the Tea Party to, to get their point of view enacted as law. So would they take the extra step in a, a constitutional crisis if it was a big enough deal and, the, and there were people with guns willing to fight if they were properly coordinated and financed? Yeah, maybe those billionaires would step up. We might actually see that. So that may sound wild to some. And uh, yeah, maybe it is wild. Maybe it won't happen. I hope it doesn't. Great. I think civil strife is a more likely scenario. Uh, I think civil war for the in, in today's climate would probably be something that would have to be rigged from the outside, like I said. Um, or there would have to be some other issue uh, that would be a catalyst for states to fight for their economic rights uh, the way the South did in the civil, first civil war around slaveholding, um, there would, you know, for example, that may, half the states make oil, the other half don't want oil, so climate change results in oil being banned or something like that. That might trigger a civil war uh, between states. Um, but otherwise, I would, it would have to be something very 
a very strong issue or there, an issue would have to be created by people who wanted to remake the government. Well, that's all very depressing and very scary. <laughs> so rather than end on that note, why don't you tell me um, what's next for you? I think you have another book coming out soon next year, don't you? Yeah, I have, I have a horror novel coming out from... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just still laughing about that. Um, yes, uh, it is pretty depressing. Um, yeah, I have another novel coming out from Orbit uh, next year. And uh, this novel, it's, it's a horror novel. It's, um, it's about a group of people who grew up in an apocalyptic cult and survived the horrors of its last days. And now they're adults and they're reuniting to confront their past and the entity that appeared on the final night. So thematically, it's about memory, trauma, uh, loss, and belonging, and faith. As far as uh, what a logline might sound like, uh, think uh, Netflix's uh, The Haunting of Hill House meets The Jonestown Massacre. And I think you've got a really good idea of what it is. It's a very emotional story. It's very powerful. Um, there's some great horror elements in it for, with the cult and some great uh, questions about faith and and, uh, you know, how far people go for their beliefs. And I think uh, people will 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 enjoy it. Well, thanks, Craig. I, I, I wanted to get away from the too depressing. And so we went to <laughs> apocalyptic cult Jonestown Massacre, which yeah, is know. a very uplifting way, I think, to uh, dealing with a guy who writes dystopia, man, you know, and, and horror. So, yeah, it can be dark. <laughs> touche, touche, absolutely. And that's why people are here to listen. So actually, it was it's a perfect way to conclude your visit on New Books and Science Fiction. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work. Thank you. I, I, it was a great conversation. I really appreciated it, Rob. And thanks for having me. And thanks to all your readers for joining us. Thanks for uh, listening. I've been talking to Craig DeLouis about his new novel, Our War, which came out from Orbit in August. Thanks for listening to New Books and Science Fiction. This show is for you folks, and I'm really grateful that you've spent this time with us today. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't already, and please check off those five stars to help spread the word to the rest of the universe about the great books and wonderful authors who come on the show. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Our masterful editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the fast-working editor of the network is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. I'm at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Read as much as you can and then read some more. Bye for now. <laughs>